There are 340 million cases of curable sexually transmitted diseases each year around the world. In developing countries, STDs and their complications are among the top five disease categories for which adults seek health care. How do STD rates worldwide compare with rates in the United States? And what medical advances in our country might help patients with STDs across the globe? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focused on global medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Jill Grimes, practicing board-certified family physician in Austin, Texas, associate editor for the five-minute clinical consult textbook, and author of Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs. Welcome, Dr. Grimes. Thank you for having me. And worldwide sexually transmittable disease is a very broad subject. Why don't we break it down by disease category to begin with and start with the curable STDs? Sounds good. Okay, the major curable STDs include the bacterial infections such as chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, as well as the parasitic infection, trichomonas. And how prevalent are these diseases worldwide? Are they really a significant factor in world health? Absolutely. As you mentioned in your opening, there's 340 million new cases of these curable STDs each year in men and women aged 15 to 49. The World Health Organization states that in developing countries, STDs and their complication are among the top five disease categories for which adults seek health care. In women of childbearing age, the STDs, excluding HIV, are second only to maternal factors as causes of disease, death, and healthy life lost. The question arises, why is it worse in developing countries? Well, I think the primary answer there is simply access to care, whether this is allocated health dollars or perceived importance. If you're in a small village and have to travel several days, possibly by foot, to seek health care, symptoms that come and go, such as those present with most STDs, that's not what's going to be bad enough to make you willing to walk those miles to seek medical attention. So have you found that there's a concentration of STD cases in geographic areas where there's poorer access to care? Yes. The largest number of new infections occurred in South and Southeast Asia, in the Sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, and the Caribbean. Now, I understand that chlamydia is the most common treatable bacterial STD. What can you tell us about chlamydia globally? Our global statistics are back from 2001, but it was estimated at that time that there were 92 million chlamydial infections that year, being split with about 50 million in women and 42 million in men. Here in the United States, as a comparison, our recent 2006 statistics revealed that for the first time we had over 1 million cases diagnosed, with an estimated true incidence of 3 million, assuming that many of those went undiagnosed. The real significance of chlamydia, and this is true for gonorrhea as well, is the sequelae from the untreated infections. It's estimated that 40% of untreated infections will progress to pelvic inflammatory disease, and 20% of those PID cases lead to infertility, and another 20% of those same PID cases will cause chronic pelvic pain. If you realize then that for every 1 million cases of chlamydia that are treated, you can prevent 60,000 cases of PID 8,000 cases of chronic pelvic pain, and roughly 7,000 cases of infertility, you can start to see the enormous impact that detection and treatment of this just one subset of STDs could create. So what might developing countries be able to learn from us regarding chlamydia? Is it that we are better at detecting and treating and then preventing those complications that you mentioned? I think that we are certainly increasing awareness, but again, I think it's more about access to care. And 
some of that is cultural and religious. I can tell you that I had an international patient who came in with some pelvic complaints and her husband, who remained in the room with her, would not allow her to undress, so I couldn't even examine her. So some cultural issues that we might see in this country from international patients. Exactly. What about gonorrhea in the U.S. compared with globally? The world data from 2001 showed about 62 million cases of gonorrhea. The international prevalence rates vary from a low of only 1% in China and Vietnam to nearly 8% in South Africa. The 2006 United States statistics give an estimate of about 700,000 cases in our country, though only half that number was reported. Again, though, I want to emphasize that it's primarily gonorrhea and chlamydia together that lead to the pelvic inflammatory disease. Let's talk about syphilis, which to me seems like it's becoming much less common in the United States. Are we seeing the same progress across the world? Well, you're right. Syphilis is now the least reported sexually transmittable disease in the United States with less than 10,000 cases of primary and secondary syphilis documented in 2006. If you also include latent and tertiary syphilis, the number increases to roughly 37,000, but you can see this is nowhere in the magnitude of the millions that we see with chlamydia and gonorrhea. Worldwide data showed that over 12 million cases, however, with an overall decline in syphilis in Western Europe, but there was still a significant increase within the independent states of the former Soviet Union. The main emphasis with syphilis, though, I think, is the hope for global elimination of congenital syphilis by increasing universal access to prenatal and newborn screening programs. We're very fortunate that penicillin will still cure the vast majority of potential congenital syphilis if the mother's disease is diagnosed and treated while the baby is still in utero. Regarding the non-congenital cases of syphilis, what has made the United States successful in reducing the number of cases here? Again, I think it's better access to care and global screening on STDs. We know that there's a link between syphilis and HIV, so if people are tested for HIV, it's a simple test to add on to the serum to check for syphilis as well. So these are things that maybe developing countries could start doing once they have better health systems in place. I believe so, yes. Now, one parasitic infection that we don't always think about when considering STDs is trichomonas. What can you tell us about trichomonas? Well, the first thing is that we should think of it more because here in the United States, we have over 5 million cases of trich infection per year, which makes it the most common non-viral STD. There is over 170 million cases annually across the globe. While trich, once it's diagnosed, is fairly easily treated, there's a twofold issue with trich. The first is that it can be hard to diagnose, partly because it's usually asymptomatic. In fact, no symptoms occur in 90% of men who have TRIC, but also partly because our tests to detect TRIC often have a very low sensitivity. The second issue, though, and the more important one, is that trichomonas is associated with a three- to five-fold increase in the transmission or acquisition of HIV disease. So while TRIC itself is often more of a medical nuisance, it can predispose patients to catching an incurable disease. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. Jill Grimes, author of Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs. We're discussing sexually transmitted diseases around the world. Let's move on now to STDs that we can treat but not cure, such as the viral sexually transmitted diseases like herpes, HPV, and HIV. 
Americans were pretty surprised and shocked at the 2006 CDC study statistics when we realized that one in four American women aged 15 to 24 have genital herpes. And so you might say, how does that compare across the globe? Well, Americans are not alone with the high prevalence of herpes. More than half a billion people are infected with HSV type 2, the virus strain that causes the majority of genital herpes, including nearly 24 million new cases per year. 563 million people aged 15 to 49 are infected, which works out to about 16% of the people in that age range. The HSV-2 prevalence was higher among women than men and varied across different world regions. Western European men had the lowest prevalence rate at 13%, and women in the sub-Saharan Africa had the highest at 70%. Do you think there might be some lessons we can learn from Western Europe in how they're able to have lower prevalence rates in men? I'm sure that there are. We don't have a lot of studies in adults, but there was a recent international teen survey that reflected that condom use is much higher in Western Europe. And how about human papillomavirus? You mentioned that condom use can decrease the HSV2 transmission, but I would also imagine it would help with HPV. And what about new vaccines that are available that could decrease this disease? Well, one of the tricky things about HPV is that it is transmitted by skin-to-skin contact, and that exceeds well outside the area of the penis, which is obviously the only area that's covered with a condom. So condom use doesn't dramatically impact the HPV transmission. I think that it's going to be fantastic to see what the new vaccines can do. In the United States, we predict that 11,000 women will be diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer from HPV, and roughly 4,000 of these women will die from this disease in this year, in 2008. There are over... 500,000 cases of cervical cancer worldwide, though, and the interesting thing is that over half of those women will die from it. 80% of the deaths from cervical cancer occur in developing countries, and we think that's due to lack of pap testing and therefore lack of early detection. The vaccines target types 16 and 18, which cause 70% of cervical cancers. So if vaccination could be expanded globally, we could potentially see an enormous reduction in morbidity and mortality from this disease. Remember, too, that HPV not only causes virtually all cervical cancer, but it's predicted to cause 90% of anal cancer, 40% of external genitalia cancers, such as vulvar, vaginal, and penile, and at least 12% of oropharyngeal cancers. So there's a hope that we would see a reduction in these diseases as well. I think if you look at the success we've had with the polio vaccine, not only here in the United States with eliminating polio, but our, the World Health Organization have goals for global eradication of polio, and they do this through events such as National Immunization Days. Then they have a mop-up, targeted vaccinations where cases of the wild virus are persisting. Can you imagine if we were able to do that with the HPV vaccines? I mean, what an amazing accomplishment to see the complete eradication of a disease such as either one of these through vaccinations. You know, but any time there's a new vaccine available, there can be patient concerns about possible adverse reactions. Do you have any concerns about the safety of the HPV vaccine, and, and what are some of those issues that people might be thinking about? Well, there was a lot of media hype about a month ago about some concerns of actually deaths from the HPV vaccine. Happily, we just uh, received the two-year safety check on the Gardasil vaccine here in the United States. 
And to, as a reminder to our listeners, the Gardasil vaccine immunizes against the two strains, 16 and 18, that cause cervical cancer, as well as the two strains that cause 90% of genital warts. At any rate, the safety studies were released last month, and the bottom line is that the various safety monitors detected no major safety problems with the vaccine. None of the media hype about the potential hazards related to Gardasil were borne out in these independent evaluations. And very specifically, there was no signal that linked Gardasil to problems such as blood clots, allergic reactions, stroke, seizure, or Guillain-Barre syndrome. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jill Grimes. We've been discussing sexually transmitted diseases around the world. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thank you for listening.